Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Emma Rush and I'll be in the hot seat today. Every year, around 850 lives are lost to cervical cancer in the UK and it's the fourth most common cancer among women globally. Yet it's a preventable and curable disease if detected and treated early. During Cervical Cancer Awareness Week, we want to talk about the importance of early diagnosis and regular screening and consider the impact COVID-19 is having on this. Joining myself and fellow medical negligence solicitor Mark Corley are two very special guests. I'd first like to welcome Jean McHale from Birmingham University. Professor McHale researches and writes in the area of healthcare law and is the director of the Centre for Health Law, Science and Policy at Birmingham Law School. She is joined by Robert Hammond, uh, a consultant gynaecologist at Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Robert runs a practice which specialises in pelvic surgery and the management of gynaecological cancers and is a fellow of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. Thank you all for giving up your time to join us today. Robert, I'd like to start with you, if I may, uh, and I'd like to talk about the impact of cervical cancer. Could you give us a bit of background on the illness itself for anyone not familiar with it? Well, cervical cancer affects um, a range of, of ages of women. There are peaks in the early 30s and peaks um, postmenopausally, and um, it tends to be more common in younger women. Um, and it's it's a disease that is is related to infection with something called the human papillomavirus or the wart virus. And um, obviously, the wart virus becomes more more prevalent in a sexually active population. Therefore, um, it, it, the the main target for for um, screening for cervical cancer is is in the younger generation. Although obviously, um, it does affect older women. So it involves women across the whole spectrum of ages. It was historically um, more common and um, the screening programme has made a massive difference and had a huge impact on the instance of cervical cancer. And in fact, since the screening programme was introduced, instance of cervical cancer has um, more than halved. So it's had a massive impact on it. And the unique um, nature of the cervical screening program is that it's not actually screening specifically for um, the disease itself. It's screening for a pre-invasive stage of the cancer. So it's a pre-cancer that it's screening for. And we know a lot about the natural history of the disease and therefore um, it's a more effective screening program than a lot of the other cancer screening programs are. Clearly, any disease that affects the younger population has a massive impact on many more people because of dependent um, family. And, uh, and so it's very important that people are aware of the fact that it can be detected early or indeed detected before it develops and therefore prevented. Essentially, all, all cervical cancers are related to HPV. It was thought that at one stage, uh, one of the types called adenocarcinoma wasn't, but it, it appears that it is. And there are some much rarer cancers that also um, develop in, in line with um, disease that has been caused by HPV. So it's effect, essentially the whole gamut of diseases caused by HPV. What are the early symptoms and signs anyone should look out for prior to screening? Um, Pre-invasive cancer of the cervix, which is what is generally being screened for, doesn't have any symptoms at all. So it is, it is dependent on cervical screening 
to pick up abnormal cells on the cervix that can then lead to further investigation and diagnosis. It may occasionally be picked up um, coincidentally, but, but that's the main way in which it does get picked up. But pre-cancers of the cervix don't cause symptoms, and that's why it's so important that we have uh, an effective screening program to detect the disease before it develops into an invasive proper cancer that does cause symptoms. So you've touched on the screening there. Could you just go into the process uh, in more detail? The screening programme is coordinated centrally, um, but it's delivered through um, primary care general practice. And there are criteria for uh, embarking on the screening programme and there are frequencies with which screening should be undertaken and that varies at different stages in the woman's life. Um, in England, screening doesn't commence until the age of 25, whereas in Scotland and Wales, it commences at the age of 20. And there's controversy about whether or not it should be introduced at either 20 or at 25. Essentially, uh, young women are invited to attend um, for screening in their um, general practices and um, they, they receive a, a letter from a central coordinating agency um, and then the laboratories are all linked to the coordinate, coordinators and to primary care and the system should work in such a way that when a woman has been screened the results get fed to the appropriate people, the coordinators are aware that the screening has taken place because otherwise um, letters are sent out as reminders and further appointments are given. So that, that's essentially how it, how it works. And what can the impact be if a woman misses a screening appointment? The natural history of the disease is that from, um, from exposure to HPV and the beginning of uh, the development of abnormal cells, um, it usually will take of the order of 10 years for a woman to pr progress to develop an invasive cancer. And indeed, the overwhelming majority of women who develop um, HPV infection going on to pre-invasive cancers will not go on to develop an invasive cancer. Only 30% of the highest grade of precancerous cells will ever go on to develop a proper cancer if they're not if nothing's done about them at all. So in the short term, a, a, a short delay in screening does not impact to any major degree at all on the instance of cervical cancer. There are a very small minority of women who um, go through a, a much more rapid development uh, from exposure to HPV to development of the cancer, but they are a minority and um, they're much more difficult to exclude by the, uh, or to prevent by the screening programme. Um, but thankfully, um, it is only a very small percentage of cases that develop in that way. Everyone and everything has been impacted in some way by the pandemic. How has that affected screening for cervical cancer? Um, in the uh, in the first wave of the lockdown, a lot of the laboratories, if not all of them, actually suspended their screening program. So they they stopped taking smears, um, or they stopped accepting smears for analysis. So that had a an effect of probably a delay of about three months in smears being taken. And also in the hospitals, there was um, an initial. Um, reluctance to see anybody who did not need emergency treatment and so a lot of the colposcopy clinics which is where the um, abnormal smears are then transferred onto for further investigation were suspended. In fact during that time it became clear that it was reasonable not to do that um, but there was a build-up of, of people who a who were waiting for, for smears but also who were waiting for further investigation having had abnormal smears. Um, that's not happened in the second 
or third lockdowns. And indeed, the, the screening programme and the um, colposcopy investigation service seems to be running pretty much as normal now, and the backlog seems to have been sorted out. And they stopped sending out screen letters um, in early April, I think from the 9th of April. Uh, and then there was guide, further guidance that was sent out to the regional public health commissioning teams by NHS England later in April about stepping up of, in relation to the need to step up non-COVID urgent services as soon as it was possible to actually do so. And they were trying to identify in you know, a ring fence diagnostic and another capacity for that as well. And they aimed to, again, go out and start you know, going back to, to women posting letters from about the 6th of June. So we're talking about probably, I think, if, about this eight-week period where the invitations to attend cervical screening didn't actually take place. Cancer Research UK and their evidence to the all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus towards the end of last year uh, noted that it was about, and I think they were saying in terms of this, it was about around about you know, 30, from the 8th of June onwards that there was guidance about clinical prioritisation and the 31st of July where there were targets set out for the full restoration of cancer services. As we've discussed, the vast majority of cancer screening appointments will not lead to a diagnosis. But if someone does have the illness, what treatment options are available to them? Well, when, when a diagnosis of, of cervical cancer is made, um, it's important, and we're talking about an invasive cancer, not the precancerous changes that are treated in the outpatient settings. Um, it's important to what we call stage the disease. In other words, to um, work out the extent of the disease for two reasons. One is to plan the most appropriate treatment for the, for the person who has the disease and secondly as a prognostic indicator so in other words to be able to advise on what the outlook is likely to be and um, the staging of cervical cancers is, is basically into four groups uh, which funnily enough are one to four and one is where the disease is confined to the cervix um, and four is where it's spread widely around the body and, and between um, those two stages obviously there are different um, extents of disease. Um, the treatment though the treatments for cervical cancer uh, involve surgical treatments, radiotherapy treatments and chemotherapy treatments. In early stage disease surgical treatment tends to be preferred um, whereas in later stage disease um, chemotherapy with radiotherapy is more commonly used and that's because um, surgical treatment is much better at removing a single focus of disease, um, whereas if you've got disease that's spread widely, it's not possible to remove all of the disease uh, surgically and it therefore has to be attacked in different ways. So um, in early stage disease, which are the majority of cases, um, and particularly in younger women, surgical, uh, a surgical approach is one that's used, um, and in more advanced disease, it tends to be with chemotherapy and radiotherapy. There may also be a combination of both surgery and other treatment. And in a small number of cases, surgery is carried out um, following chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but that's in, in a very small minority of cases. So as we find ourselves in Cervical Cancer Awareness Week, why is raising awareness so important? So from my perspective, I think we're in a um, position where we've we've obviously spoken about the delays to the, the screening program during COVID nineteen, 
it's more important than ever actually to, to raise awareness of this condition to almost mitigate the uh, the, the impact of COVID-19 on the screening screening program and we're at a time now where um, patients across across the UK may not be seeing clinicians whether that's general practitioners or otherwise as much as they had been before because of um because of covid you know we're, we're being obviously encouraged to stay at home and, and patients are presenting to um, primary care scenarios less than they would have done before and um particularly when when uh, when robert's discussing the fact that you, know, you don't have symptoms at the, at the, the beginning of the pre-invasive stage um, it's so important that um, that people are aware of those, so that if they have missed the screen a screening um, appointment, or if they've experienced delays because of that, they're immediately able to act on those symptoms if they do progress to that stage and then present to the screening program. And Jean, in terms of the the objectives of the screening program, obviously. Um, uh, a part of that was in relation to addressing health inequalities um, across the UK. We know there's um, a, a big difference depending on lots of socio-economic reasons as to why the screening program could be more effective than areas uh, over others. Um, to, to a certain extent, obviously, they existed before COVID-19. Um, how do you think um, that the pandemic has had an impact on those health inequalities? I think this will be something for those, the, the scientists and others uh, and academics in, in writing papers in terms of the detailed research about the, the precise impact of COVID in relation to particular populations. What certainly does appear to be the case in relation to that is that uh, COVID itself and its spread does seem to be linked to areas of socioeconomic deprivation as well. And the concerns around that therefore are, are manifest uh, and major about that running going forward. There is a concern as well in a relation to the equality question of, uh, in terms of individuals coming forward for treatment. I know that in relation to, to cancer treatment, there's been concern expressed that, particularly in relation to the BAME community, that individuals were particularly concerned about coming forward when the pandemic was ongoing and because of course we've also seen that members of that community do appear to have been very exposed and very very badly hit by the, the pandemic going forward. Robert from your perspective in clinical practice um, are you seeing that in terms of um, a um, patients being reluctant to come in for, 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 for appointments because of the impact of, of the pandemic or you know, are there measures being put in place by, by hospitals to try and mitigate that and encourage patients to come forward? Jean mentioned the term, the NHS is still open, for example. I think that um, it, it hasn't noticeably made a, a, a great deal of difference once we started um, offering appointments again. And I think that patients by and large are grateful to, to be seen um, and actually cervical, um, abnormal cervical smears and, and potential cancers clearly are anxiety-provoking uh, diagnoses or concerns to women, and and quite understandably they're they're keen to be seen. And I, 
I've always been amazed at, at the what we call the DNA rate, which is patients who don't attend their appointments in relation to abnormal smears. I've never really understood why someone wouldn't come, but obviously there are lots of issues in relation to that. The DNA rate since the onset of COVID has not, from my perspective, changed to any great degree. It's certainly not deteriorated, and if anything, it's improved a little. So I think people are probably more aware of the fact that, you know, they're grateful to have the NHS still working and they, they don't want to not utilise it at, at, at this time. So I think there are lots of interesting factors that come into play in relation to attendance for hospital clinic appointments, but I haven't seen a particular uh, deterioration in people not, not coming for their appointments. Again, going forward on that, uh, there were some agreements with private sector hospitals in the early period um, of the actual pandemic. I know there's a questions going forward about, at the moment, the continuation certainly of non-urgent care in the private sector um, and whether you know that actually should be stopped and indeed colleagues move over to more urgent care in relation to you know treatment as a whole so i think there's probably ongoing questions really of you know what happens there's been a lot of media attention in the last few years around cervical screening and abnormal results and how worried people are when they get a letter through the post what would your message be to anyone in that situation? Um, th there are two things. I wonder if I could just come back on the last issue that we were talking about before I answer that. In relation to the third wave, it, it's my personal opinion that has nothing to do with policymaking because I'm not a policymaker, that actually the screening programme should carry on much as it has done before and the referral into secondary care should carry on much as it has done before for two very simple reasons. One is that the majority of women who have abnormal smears are young and are not at significant risk or not in the, the high risk groups for developing COVID and for the implications of COVID. And secondly, because almost all of patients who have abnormal smears can be dealt with in an outpatient setting and very, very few of them will require any admission to hospitals and inpatients. So I think that the screening programme should be able to coexist without having a major impact on on NHS services and um, also um, there are um, a lot of people within the NHS who um, whose jobs have been changed significantly because of the alteration in the pattern of work that's going on whereas they could actually be utilizing their time to be doing what they're good at in order to run these services. So I think it's a it's a terribly difficult balance and it's very easy when one doesn't have to make policy decisions about things. But my view is that this the screening programme should not be affected and by, by any to any degree by the or, or to as, as little degree as possible by the by the COVID pandemic and the third wave and into the future. Going on to the DNA business, I, I another personal gripe I've got, you've caught me with this question at a bad time, is, is that the screening letter that women get when they have an abnormal smear, I think, is, is open to criticism because it is scary. And it says to patients who have probably not got very much wrong with them, you have been found to have high-risk HPV on your screening test. And the poor poor women think what on earth does that mean I've got high risk there must be something seriously wrong with me which is what I would think if I got a, a letter saying that so I think there is a lot of fear that is generated by the way in which people are informed of their screening results 
and actually the, the the fear that's generated is disproportionate to the to the problem they've got and i think that the 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 screening letters the the results letters that go out should have more explanation in them as to what that actually means and that it doesn't mean that there's a serious necessarily a serious problem and there probably isn't a serious problem it buys into that whole question of respect for patient autonomy awareness of effective information about your healthcare post montgomery um and also i think as well the really important point you're raising here too relates to also who how is that information provided but by whom and and to what extent again to throw this back to you as well because i'd be interested to know or, or whether we know actually who drop who drafts those letters you know who formulated them originally are they reviewed in terms of content by the experts in the area it has there been any focus group on it or feedback on it as to how people actually appreciate and understand the information when it's conveyed to them well the screening program is 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 fantastic it's very well organized it's very well run and it works a little bit like a a, a sort of well, like the ideal COVID vaccination program should work, where you're wheeled in, you see the person who should take your background history, and then you go to see, make sure there's no reason not to have the vaccine and so on. It's a production line, which is very efficient from the point of view of treating the disease. But what one is losing is the personal touch that goes with it. And a long time ago, when I was first a consultant, we didn't, well, the screening program was just getting off the ground. Most screening was done in primary care and it was done by the GP and when the result came through, the result came through to the GP surgery and the GP then saw the, the, the woman who had the abnormal smear and spoke to them about it and then they made a referral to the hospital for further investigation. Of course that took time and the disadvantage was that it was open to things not getting done, the process not working and delays in investigation diagnosis which could have catastrophic effects but the and, and that's where the screening program is so brilliant but the disadvantage of the screening program is that it is depersonalized and and I see girls who come in who've had um, abnormal smears they've had this letter that says you've got high risk HPV and I say to them have, has anyone spoken to you about your smears on and of course they haven't and that's not a criticism it's because as soon as the result is is processed by the laboratory it gets put onto a computer it goes through to the central um, coordinators an appointment is generated automatically for the colposcopy clinic which is brilliant because it saves time but nobody nobody speaks to the poor the poor individual who's actually at the center of it so fear is is automatically generated and that's and that was the real problem with the shutting down of the service for three months at the start of the COVID business because there were people who, what, what happened in Nottingham, and I don't know whether this was the same across the board, but patients who had low-grade smear abnormalities, their, their appointments were postponed. So they were going to wait because the probability was that if it was low-grade abnormality, it wasn't going to be anything that was too nasty. Whereas the high-grade smear abnormalities, a few of them would have a very early invasive cancer. So they, the, but the, the poor women who was then put on, had had an appointment which was then cancelled, and then they got they didn't know how long they were going to wait until it was going to be sorted out was sitting there with this this letter i don't know who dis, who devises the letters and i've never been party to that and it's very easy to criticize from outside when you're not actually involved in providing the the service and i think it's it's 
it's the impact of any system. There are there are very good things and there are very bad things. And the bottom line is that screening programme saves saves many lives, and that's got to be good. So I think it's tricky. And apart from screening, are there any other ways that women can prevent cervical cancer? Um, smoking is a risk factor. There, there, there are also general healthcare um, and and sexual healthcare, obviously, because it is. Some people would say cervical cancer is a sexually transmitted disease, which of course it is, but not in the same way that a lot of different sexually transmitted diseases with different connotations have. Um, so that there, there are lifestyle issues in relation to, to the prevention of cervical cancer, um, just there in relation to all, all pretty much all disease. Um, but uh, the screening programme is massively important in, in, in the prevention of this disease and has had a huge impact on it. And finally, Mark, you wanted to talk about the unsung heroes who play a huge role in helping to raise awareness. I think it's an appropriate time, actually, to talk about the charity sector here, because uh, raising awareness is so important um, because those charities uh, specific, that specifically relate to this area, um, the, the two that come to my mind, Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust and the Eve Appeal, um, they provide enormous support to patients um, across the country and they're such a valuable source of support, fundraising. Um, they also um, take part in research that informs government policy and um, obviously we want to raise awareness to, um, with the ultimate aim of saving lives of course, but it's also important to raise awareness of those charities too because of the support that they provide um, to cervical cancer and um, that has to continue um, obviously during COVID-19 um, the impact on the charity sector has been enormous and um, it's it's really important this year to um, support those charities and of course the patients that they support themselves um, so that we can improve the service as it sort of progresses through 2021 and beyond. Well, I think um, raising awareness is so important um, because um, it is a lifesaver. And I think the most important message that should go out is that it's it's a relatively um, straightforward screening process. And the majority of people who are found to have an abnormal result don't have serious disease, but they are being prevented from developing serious disease in the future. So it's something that's well worth doing from a long term perspective. Thank you for that, Robert, and thank you to Mark and to Jean for battling through her sound and Wi-Fi issues. That's it for today and the latest edition of our Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then press the follow button so you don't miss an episode. And stay safe, everyone. <laughs>